Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Geek Briefs. I'm your host, Barbara. Welcome back. On today's show, we'll be discussing Man of Steel and check out a few things from the mailbag. So let's get into it. I originally posted my thoughts on my blog when I was fresh from the theater. Uh, Since then, I keep changing, writing, posting, changing, rewriting, reposting uh, this so many times. I'm not sure if my thoughts really matter anymore. So bear with me. Also, I make a lot of comparisons to the 78 Superman movie. This isn't meant to bash or criticize the previous movie, but it's the main live-action reference I have besides Smallville and a few faded memories of Lois and Clark and and the old uh, Superman serial. I tried to stay spoiler-free, but by fully digesting everything I saw, a few spoilers are going to leak out, so you've been warned. Let's make this simple. When I need to analyze something, I usually do it in lists. So first, let's look at my loves, what I like about this movie. It's a realized Krypton that we haven't seen except in a few comics. Finally, we have a Krypton that feels inhabited. The Donner film previously made Krypton feel like a small colony on an icy sphere and not a thriving civilization like it does in the comics and like it should be. Henry Cavill is Superman. Everything he says, how he reacts, how he looks, screams Superman. I can understand why he makes some of the choices he's made. Uh, He's just starting out in his career as a hero, and he's forced to make a lot of difficult choices. Perhaps they're, they're not the best choices, but I do respect how the film decided not to shy away from those moments. Russell Crowe is Jarrell. He was far better than Brando, in my opinion. He wasn't as stilted. You could tell he felt something for his son and his civilization. He was willing to do anything and everything he possibly could to ensure his son's welfare and provide Krypton a second chance at life. Perhaps that's being a little too critical of Brando, but but to me, Brando seemed too disconnected to Krypton, to Lara, to his entire world falling apart. In Crow's performance in Man of Steel, you see him challenging the Kryptonian Council. You see him challenge Zod. You see the wonder in his eyes when he holds his son for the first time, and for the last time. I appreciate Lara far more than I did in the 78 Donner movie. You can tell how much of a struggle this is for her. She's torn. She doesn't want to give up her child, but she knows she has very little option in the situation, or very little choice in the matter. In the end, I can feel her tragedy the keenest. She's forced to give up her son, she witnesses the murder of her husband, and and she's forced to stand silent as her husband's murderer swears eternal vengeance against her family. Add to it the knowledge that her species was soon to become extinct, her son had been sent out into an uncertain future, and her home planet was only moments away from being obliterated... Laura's doomed. She's doomed in the most tragic and impossible of circumstances. How can anyone not feel for her? We see Clark Kent make his way in the world, and and I love how it took time and effort for him to find what he was looking for. Perhaps we didn't see that time and effort, but but it's implied, and his past before Earth isn't conveniently excuse me, conveniently dropped into his lap. He travels 16 or so years to find the answers he's searching for, and he's so desperate to find his purpose for being on Earth that perhaps he is a little too eager. But eagerness isn't such a bad thing. In a sense, it informs the character's motivations in the story uh, quite a bit. 
I've heard people comment that they think Clark was too eager to accept his Kryptonian heritage, and that more time should have actually been taken with Jurel before he takes steps out into the world to wear the cape. Initially, I honestly thought so too, until I saw the death of Jonathan Kent in the movie. I think that Clark's desperation to find answers and his eager acceptance of his Kryptonian heritage stems from Jonathan's sacrifice. The story he tells Lois says it all, basically. Jonathan loves his, or loved his son, but he didn't believe the world was ready for him yet. His human father loved his son and, and believed so completely in the potential for Clark to do good that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. He looked at his son one last time, he smiled, and he let himself be swept away by the storm. For Clark to witness that kind of sacrifice... I would think it would strengthen his need to find answers, and, and he'd want to validate his father's faith in him. We see him struggle with his powers as a child and as an adult, especially in moments when he's dealing with bullies. In the end, it's his choices that define him. He tries to do the right thing no matter what, even if it's tough, even if it makes him vulnerable. He chooses to be a good person and make the right choices, no matter how hard it is for him. But we we get to see that uh, with super. Let me let me say this again. Um, we get to see that Superman isn't just a, a strong man. He has a strength of integrity that eclipses some of the most powerful heroes in the DC universe. With the exception of his final interaction with Zod, all this basically rings true. The Superman of old would say, of course, that there's always another option besides killing. But in this situation, we see a Kal-El that is unable to see an out and is forced to kill. Now, I know a lot of people are troubled by this, by, by the fact that Superman does kill Zod. But someone pointed out an important fact that never really registered with me until recently. Derek Russell, the host of Starkville's House of L and a co-host on Geek Out Loud, is one of the biggest Superman fans in Mississippi. He's even written for DC Comics. He pointed out that in Superman 2, when Zod confronts Superman in the Fortress of Solitude, that Superman kills Zod. He kills him as a mortal, non-powered individual. He throws him into an icy ravine. Uh, Lois also, uh, she she kills Ursa, which, you know, Ursa aka Feora. And basically she goes tumbling to her death as well. No one seemed to have an issue with this in the past, so why should we now? Is it possible that the events that unfolded in Man of Steel uh, helped to shape Superman's belief that there's always another way besides lethal force? Possibly. I'd like to see this thread, this uh, story thread, continue on into the next movie and, and see how they develop that further. But I digress. Let's uh, get back into some more of the loves that I saw. I loved that there are two Emile Hamiltons in one scene. Smallville fans, you know what I'm talking about. Jor-El's history lesson is original, and, and the effects are mesmerizing. It looks like an animated Art Deco relief, like one of those crank-operated puppet shows that were made of tin in the, back in the 30s and 40s. I love Superman's first attempt at flight, and the fact that it wasn't perfect. I love and appreciate Pa Kent again. For reference, I loved what little we saw of Glenn Ford's Jonathan Kent in the 78 Superman. 
Eddie Jones's version of Mr. Kent on Lois and Clark was okay, but it was played up for comic relief. And I could never honestly get... I could never get into Jonathan Kent's... Uh, oh, sorry. I could never get into John Schneider's Jonathan on Smallville. I know people are going to be a little bit annoyed by my thoughts on this, but something just rubbed me the wrong way about that portrayal. Some, he, he ended up, in my eyes, too preachy. I don't know. I just, I just did not like him. But Costner's Pa Kent is right on the mark. He's protective without being overbearing or territorial, loving without being smothering. He's a mentor without being preachy. And he understands that his son has a difficult path ahead of him, and he admits he doesn't have all the answers. He just does the best he can. Lois is a real investigative journalist. She's not just there to be rescued. She doesn't put blinders up when she doesn't want to see what's in front of her. Uh, when she puts herself in dangerous situations, it's because she's willing to go where the story leads her, and she doesn't make ridiculous choices. She doesn't jump out of windows or put her life in peril because she knows she won't get hurt. I mean, she understands what she's risking, and, and, she, and she takes that leap. You know, just to, to hunt down that story like a relentless dog with a bone. I love Feora. She is magnificent. She's a force to be reckoned with. You can see why she's one of Zod's lieutenants. From now on, if I read a comic or watch another Superman movie or television show, I'm going to think, this needs more Feora. Oh, uh, okay, what else? I hop. Sorry, I'm dying for pancakes, but uh, I've seen a few complaints concerning the amount of product placement in Man of Steel. I don't have an issue with integrated marketing in movies and television shows. They pay the bills, and, and that's why we get the quality stories we get. The only thing I, I, I can say in terms of that is, so long as it isn't shoved in our faces and down our throats, I'm, I'm cool with it. Now, if we end up with a product placement Pete touting stride gum, I, I might get a touch annoyed. But to me, product placement, when used correctly, can ground a film or television show in reality. The real world has IHOPs and Sears, and people use Nikon cameras. Uh, to, get, to negate their existence in many ways is just as bad as blatantly flooding our screen with uh, product placement porn. Michael Shannon. I love Michael Shannon's General Zod. It's a different kind of love than what I have for Terrence Stamp Zod, but it, it's on par. To a degree, you can feel sympathy for the character, an emotion that Stamp's portrayal never evoked in me. For me, Stamp Zod relishes chewing up the scenery and being the baddie. Shannon's character really doesn't have time for that. He's calm, in control, and for most of the film, and keeps himself on a tight leash until things start going against him on Krypton and later on Earth. In those moments, his loss of control, his vindictiveness, his bitterness, his cruelty, shines through to a staggering level. I love that Man of Steel was filmed in my old neck of, neck of the woods in Plano, Illinois. I lived in Illinois all my life up until 2001 when I had to move. Uh, the town looks pretty much like any other town in that area. Actually, Plano is, is considerably larger than the one I grew up in, but what little we saw of it reminded me of home. And, and on a personal level, I found that pretty cool. The movie is realistic in the sense that 
Trust is not automatically granted, but earned by all the characters. And in some cases, trust is still a work in progress. I want to see more of this in future Superman movies. Odds are good we'll see Lex Luthor in the franchise at some point, and when we do, it'll be nice to see Lex's perspective concerning Superman. The small Easter eggs that lock Man of Steel into the DC Universe are wonderful. Uh, the Wayne Enterprises satellite, the LexCorp construction sign and tanker that we see, the Blaze comic sign, which is the publisher in DC Universe who prints the time-traveling exploits of Booster Gold. It is really cool to see. It's small, but it's really cool. Uh, we see Steve Lombard working at the Daily Planet. And we I think there's a Be Calm and Call Batman sign that you can see as Zod is tearing apart a building. Uh, Jor-El's motivational speech to Clark as an ideal to strive towards is almost verbatim from issue 12 of All-Star Superman. There's a photo album uh, that Martha looks through that's showing a picture of Clark and Jonathan at a science fair. And the picture shows Clark went to Weisinger Primary School, which is a, a nod to Superman editor Mort Weisinger. What else? Um, there are there were uh, Smallville references, the television series Smallville. They mentioned the Fordham boy, which is probably a reference to Whitney Fordham. The Sullivan truck and tractor repair references is, is a reference to Chloe Sullivan. And there are probably others, but I can't think of them at the moment. The music, uh, the score, it, it sets the pace and flows with the story in all the right places. Uh, when I first heard a mix of it in the three-minute trailer, it was perfect. In, in fact, at the end of episode 8 of Geek Briefs, I tagged the music at the end of the episode, and it's amazing. The use of drums and steel guitars and French horns is, is inspiring. Uh, in certain phrases, it has tinges of Blade Runner that, that are kind of quite beautiful, and, and it's a bold and distinct and has moments when I listen to it that I feel like it can fly. Alright, so we've gone through the loves. Let's go into the not-so-fun stuff, my dislikes. There's a certain fantasy hallucination sequence between Kal-El and Zod that bothers me. Although it provides valuable exposition, it feels out of place. It, it reminds me a little of that moment in Jonah Hex, where Hex is fighting Quentin Turnbull, and suddenly they appear in a desert arena, and it flashes back and forth between the real-world fight and this fantasy fight. It's interesting to look at and has a whiff of poetry to it, but it really feels out of place. Okay, my next issue is the death toll. You look at the destruction of Metropolis. You look at the debris, the fallen buildings. You hear the screams, and you see the chaos. Perhaps Superman couldn't take the fight elsewhere. Perhaps he had no choice but to keep the fight in Metropolis. Or perhaps Superman's, it was Superman's first day on the job, and he doesn't understand that the best way to protect the people is to keep the fight away from the population. I can understand it to a degree, but it's really hard to watch. I'm just grateful that they didn't steer away from it like they do in Marvel's, in, in the way that Marvel did with the Avengers. There is a lot of Superman screaming, and screaming, and screaming. I understand he's doing a lot of difficult things that are testing his limits, but there's a lot of screaming. I know this is a superficial annoyance, but it, it actually grated on me a little bit in, in the movie, and I kind of feel bad for mentioning it, but it did. I have a hard time listening to people that are complaining about the horrible 
how, well, actually how horrible the movie is, and justifying their opinion by citing RottenTomatoes.com and, and looking at the rating. There are plot holes. I admit to that fully. People can choose to forgive them or flame the Superman sides. The plot holes really don't bother me too much, but I do have issue with people calling me an apologist because of my love for the character. Uh, and what's funny, and then rather, I, I just, I kind of have an issue with, is they, they will call me an apologist because of my love of Superman, but they have absolutely no issue whatsoever with Nolan's final Batman film. So... Sit back, gentle listeners, and consider this. Let me paint a scene for you. In The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce Wayne is able to leave his Moroccan well prison in the middle of the desert, on the other side of the world, without any visible transportation or money, and arrive in Gotham City, which is cordoned off by the U.S. military and Bane's terrorist forces, completely and totally undetected. Now, if you have an issue with Man of Steel, but none whatsoever uh, concerning that issue in Dark Knight Rises, I think you need to sit back and reevaluate. Now, I will fully admit that when the credits rolled, I did feel a bit dazed, a bit exhausted. I, I didn't know how to react. The movie felt like it was over way too soon, and something was missing. I'm not sure how to explain it, except perhaps um, perhaps like this. It felt like when your mother makes your favorite meal of all time. Everything is there on the table. You breathe it in. You can't wait to taste all your favorite flavors. Uh, feel the textures in your mouth and, and have your eyes roll up into the back of your head out of pure bliss. You take your first bite and... Everyone around the table leans forward. They're watching and waiting for that blissful reaction that you know, that they know is going to come. Except it doesn't. You take another bite, and you chew, and you take another, and another, and something's off. The meal tastes wonderful. It's great. But you can't place what is different. And, and that's kind of how I feel about Man of Steel. Perhaps I was a little too excited and had too high an expectation for the film. I'm not sure. I hope I'm not the only one that feels this way. And, and from the few things I've read, it, it looks like I'm not. But it's it's just... Hmm, it, it's one of those things that you just can't really describe. The movie is a good Superman story. It has its solid moments. When I first watched it, I wanted to give it a 7.5 or 8 out of 10. Then I analyzed it further, and I decided to give it about a 9 to 9.5. And then I heard the opinions of the more critical reviewers uh, and the people that were so polarized against it, and I decided to actually bump it up, maybe, I will actually consider bumping it up out of, make it a pure 10, simply out of spite. But now that I actually feel a little bit better going back to an 8 to 9 out of 10 range, because, uh, honestly, it's, like I said, it just, it's just it's difficult to describe. It's a good story. Or, uh, actually, if I went a more classic route to make it simpler, I guess I'd call it four out of five stars. Odds are good, 
I'll change my thoughts or find something I want to examine further, even after I post this episode. It's strange to see how people are reacting to this movie. The opinions are so polarized. All I can recommend is ignore those reviews. Ignore mine. Go see this movie if you haven't already, and judge it for yourself. Because anything I or anyone else says pales in comparison to what you think. And after you've seen it and, and gotten your thoughts together, drop us a line at Geek Bruce Studios and tell us what you think. On to the next topic. I was fortunate enough to get a digital download of the first four volumes of IDW's Star Trek ongoing series. This is a series that continues on from the 2009 J.J. Abrams film and shows the current crew of the Enterprise embarking on the adventures that the original series crew had back in 1966. This doesn't mean the series is just a bunch of pretty pictures and a transcription of the previous episodes word for word. Far from it. It takes some of the most classic episodes and changes them in the same way that the 2009 movie and its sequel, Into Darkness, have. Mike Johnson does a great job keeping the tone of the characters consistent through all the issues. The artists should all be given a pat on the back for their unique but similar representations of the actors. As I mentioned previously, the ongoing series takes place between the 2009 movie and the most current one, Star Trek Into Darkness. The series bridges the time between with various retellings and original stories that delve into each character. One of the first episodes that we see is Where No Man Has Gone Before, where Gary Mitchell, a friend of Kirk's from the Academy, gains omnipotent powers and becomes dangerously corrupted by them. Following this are retellings of The Galileo 7, Operation Annihilate, The Return of the Archons, The Trouble with Tribbles, and Mirror Mirror. Despite the stellar retelling of these stories, the original content is what stands out. Issue 13 and issues 17 through 20 are standalones, with a poignant look at uh, specific characters uh, like Dr. McCoy, Sulu, Chekhov, Uhura, Scotty, and a couple of stories called the Red Shirt Tales. Now, one of my personal favorite stories is from the Red Shirt Tales, and it's called Hendorf's Story. If you don't remember the character Hendorf, you may remember him by his other alias, Cupcake, the Enterprise security officer that gets into a barroom brawl. Excuse me, barroom brawl. I can't say brawl. Thank you, barroom brawl with Kirk in the 2009 movie. The story is extremely well written, and the use of the original series episode, The Apple, as the backdrop of the story was pure genius. It takes on the infamous red shirt curse uh, head on. After reading this story, it made me want to put on a red shirt and hold my head up high. Should this title continue for the next few years, it'll be an interesting addition to the new Star Trek universe. Now, a brief dip into the Geek Briefs mailbag. This email is from Crease, and he writes, Thanks for answering my question on the last episode. I have another question for you. I've only recently started listening to podcasts at work, and I was wondering if you had any that you would recommend. I'm into a little bit of everything. Superman, TV shows like Firefly, Buffy, Arrow, Star Trek, Smallville, cartoons, comics, etc., Okay, uh, hey, Crease. Good to hear from you again. Podcasts are tricky things. 
there are a lot of podcasts there that out there that delve into various fan areas. Uh, based off the, the small list that you gave me, uh, off the top of my head, I'd suggest for Firefly, you should probably check out The Signal. They do everything from serious critiques of the series to fan fiction to reviewing what's coming out next for QMX. For Buffy or any general Joss Whedon stuff, that's a tough one. Um, many moons ago, I used to listen to Jost. Strangely literal, uh, basically anything under Tabs's Between the Line Studios banner is really great. For Arrow, I've yet to find a podcast that I really enjoy and is really, you know, is in-depth. It's, it's The few that I've found are just, they're just way too superficial. For Star Trek, I used to really dig TrekCast, but I haven't had a chance to listen to them in a while. Smallville and Superman. Okay, I, I would definitely check out Superman Homepage's Speeding Bulletin. Steve Eunice does a short 15 to 25 minute podcast that delves into current Superman news. It's always informative and, and if it's interesting to watch because it is a video podcast. And of course, I'd check out Starkville's House of L. Now, Shu has quasi-closed their doors since the end of Smallville back in 2011. But they occasionally put out episodes that discuss the current Smallville Season 11 comic with the head writer Brian Q. Miller. And they are wonderful. They're, they're very interesting and informative and very fun to listen to. If you have a love for cartoons or animation in general, then uh, another podcast I'd check out would be Animation Fascination with Mark and Matt. Let's see, what else is on your list? Um, comics. Alright, comics really depend on your flavor. If you like Batman, I'd check out Kevin Smith's Fat Man on Batman. He tends to have a lot of guests, people that are writers, artists, actors, that have worked in the Batman universe. If you like uh, classic DC art, then I would check out the Fire and Water podcast, specifically their Who's Who episodes, where they discuss the DC Comics catalog of characters. For general geekery... Okay, I occasionally listen to Geek Out Loud, which has a few interesting discussions that touch on a variety of different topics. And I like the DragonCon TV, which is home for many of the short bumper videos that are presented at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia. There are a few others, but I'll tell you what, Crease, if you send me another email, send me privately, just give me a list, and uh, if this isn't... if you know, if this is it, or if you have more, if I know of anything, I'll throw it your way. But honestly, the best way to figure out whether a, a podcast fits for you is to listen to a few episodes and see if any of them fit. And also check forums, check uh, blogs, people that are interested in things, and, and ask them. Ask them if they listen to podcasts and if any they recommend. And usually they might point you in the right direction. And that's our show for today. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, drop us an email at geekbriefs at live.com. You can also contact the Geek Briefs studio at the Twitter account at Geek Briefs or the Geek Briefs Facebook page. The next episode will be our DCUO episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Take care.